0: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare Short-Term Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: The Science of Sports Podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch.
2: Just out as a case study illustration of the madness. What you're seeing, Ross, is a shift from sport development to sport for development. People seem to think that they've got to conform to some sort of idealized movement pattern, i.e. a technique.
3: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Science of Sport. I am Ross Tucker flying solo today because I am in Switzerland while Mike is back in Cape Town. However, it's not just going to be me droning on for the next hour and a bit, because very shortly, I will be joined by Stuart Armstrong, who is a name that will be familiar to you because two podcasts back, he was our guest for a fascinating discussion on sports environments and how we design systems to coach and develop children for lifelong activity or high performance. And it was a discussion that resonated with so many of you because it raised so many important issues. One of them being the philosophical question of what does sport even mean for children. And so, because of that, we just had to get Stuart back on. And so that's what this episode is. And it was set up as a Q and A, in which some of our VIP patrons were allowed to listen in live and ask questions of Stuart themselves. So basically you will hear me and Stuart and you get to eavesdrop on our conversation for a while and then you'll hear the voices of those patron followers as they ask the questions that were on their minds. Huge thank you to those of you who are patrons and who donate monthly to support our work on sports science communication. If you would like to become one of them, you can do so by going to patreon.com forward slash the science of sport. Any support, of course, is greatly welcomed. But let me, let me step out of the way and, and hand you over to Stuart, who's got a great deal of insight and wisdom to share. Once again, is going to raise so many challenges that will hopefully hit home with those of you who are parents, coaches, young athletes, and maybe even the old athletes. So here, once again, is Stuart Armstrong. Right, Stuart, thank you very much for giving us more of your time. Episode one was a hit. Uh Stuart actually messaged me on social media after our first episode went out and said, Is is this normal for us to get so much feedback? And it wasn't. It was abnormally high because the topic was abnormally interesting. And I think don't blush Stuart, but the guest was abnormally good at explaining it. So so that's why we that's why I managed to to hook Stuart back for part two. And I've invited our patron followers to join this call. So we currently have almost a dozen listening in live to Stuart and I talking. Uh, In a moment or two I'm going to throw it open to the floor as it were for some questions. So this is a slightly different podcast to what you might be familiar with. Thank you hugely to all those people who have pledged some monthly support on Patreon. Your support is massively appreciated and hopefully little things like this make it worth your while over and above the podcast. So, Stuart, I see you joining us from the same spot as last time, looking very casual on a Wednesday evening. I know you were supposed to be going away, but those plans got delayed. So, your loss is our gain. So, thanks very much for being here. I'm uh, I'm really happy to be here and. Um I like being
2: described as abnormally good. I think that's probably the best the best sort of way of describing me that somebody probably has ever come up with. So uh <laughs> ob- abnormal definitely and uh, but I like the good bit at the end of it. And Ross just while we're on this because I'm a fellow podcaster and I've made this
3: mistake myself. Uh do you need to press record? Uh I do on the video. Ah, I do it. on the video, but <laughs> I was at least prepared enough to press record on the sound
0: recording, the recording. in progress. So
3: I, Do I get 50%? That's but okay. I, I just, I've made that mistake before and I couldn't let you do it because I, yeah, I, I, it's horrible. Abnormally good and excessively organized and professional. <laughs> so Stuart, we, I think we covered some very profound ground last time. We started off really wanting to talk to you about coaching children. And we ended up, um, actually talking more about philosophy of sport which was very interesting the um the the conversation went in a direction that i i don't think i was certainly anticipating so that was that was um interesting and then i spoke to you afterwards and you said that you were a little bit concerned that perhaps it was from your side a little bit ranty with the word that you used (laughs) but I, i honestly i don't think that it was i think it was just an indication of the passion you have for the subject. And then as fate would have it, the very next day, you messaged me with a link. And the link was from a BBC News article. And I wanted to read that to people now. The headline is the four-year-old footballer. You heard that right. The four-year-old footballer scouted by Arsenal while still at nursery. And there's a video and it tells a story of a four-year-old called Zayn Ali Salman, who was just four years old. When he caught the attention of one of London's biggest football clubs, he's the youngest ever recruit to the Arsenal pre-academy. After his skills had him running rings around players twice his age, so you sent that piece to me last week, and I, I have a feeling I can fairly accurately gauge your reaction to it. But maybe in your words, what what do you think when you see stuff like that?
2: Well, yeah, I mean. It- i guess it um it just stuck out as a case study illustration of the madness <laughs> whereby i mean don't get me wrong right i mean <laughs> pre academy this is an interesting concept you know so there is obviously uh, the there is rules in place that determines the age at which you can enter the full academy, um, which is sort of, you know, l- later in childhood, but you can enter, but the pre-academy, and, you know, I don't think there are, well, clearly there are less restrictions. So uh, we have a situation whereby some people who are, I assume professionals, you know, they, they do this for a living. I assume you know, they're, um, you know, they they are well versed in, you know, the, the world of sort of, you know, child development and um, skill acquisition and um, talent development, talent ID. And for some reason, these professionals think that's all right. I mean, when you watch the video and you, you hear the child talking, um, you know, you, you then begin to see that, you know, that the, where he is, you know, so precocity, of, of course, you know, so has precocity as a footballer, he's a four-year-old boy. Yeah. And, you know, um, my 10 year old daughter recently came down be- was because she was a bit disappointed because the tooth fairy hadn't visited her, even though one of her teeth had fallen out. And that was to do with the fact that the tooth fairy was very tired uh, on that evening. But, you know, and, and that's a 10-year-old and there's a four-year-old and there's a four-year-old there and there's Christmas coming up and there's all these different things and we're asking these children to enter a pre-academy. And yeah, I can't describe it as anything other than madness. It, it just doesn't make sense to anybody. And yeah, it's almost become normalized, celebrated.
3: Yeah. The thing I struggled with, well, not struggled with, but I've been particularly struck by in the last week, is that universally... The feedback to what you said on the pod last week was agreement. Now, I'm the first one to recognise that what I've established on Twitter is an echo chamber, so I'm only going to hear that. But I also, I also can't imagine anyone seeing this article about a four-year-old kid being signed up by a professional football club and going, "That's cool." <laughs> How is, and and maybe it's just because I'm not in the circle of of, of people. But when you say it's normalised. I don't see anyone saying that this is a good thing. So how 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 is it normalised? When I reckon, if I asked a hundred people at a shopping mall whether that's reasonable, more than two thirds would say that's ridiculous. Let kids be kids.
2: Yes, but it's a little bit like I said uh, when we when we spoke last time. I think by and large. Rationally, most most people, particularly the people in our echo chamber, um, would be in violent agreement. However, that is a relatively small number. Mm. And I actually think that the bigger number are the people who think that that child's uh, future is paved with gold. And actually, that's the root. So, you know you know, ultra precocity amongst youngsters is deemed to be, you know, and you look, there's video everywhere. You know, there's video everywhere of Messi at four and, and, you know, Ronaldo at four and all these other kids at four in other different sports. You know, there's as many, you don't see those videos. They don't permeate like the internet in the same way that, Roger Federer, multi-sport athlete, didn't really become really, really, really good at tennis until he was about 14. They don't catch hold. No one sends them around, do they? Mm. But everyone loves a four-year-old who's good at stuff. And so I think there's a very pernicious um, idea that is out there that no one really openly speaks about. But dearly, I think there are some people, if they're really honest with themselves, um, would dearly love that to be their child. Um, regardless of the downstream consequences, <laughs>
3: sure. and, and there
2: are and some other people who maybe aren't even thinking about the downstream consequences.
3: So, yeah. You spoke about the scout. I mean, sh- we we should assume that the scout has got a reasonable, way better than average understanding that the the probability that that four year old becomes a good fourteen year old, let alone a twenty four year old, must be re- remote. I mean, tiny, tiny, tiny probability. Put us in the mind of that person. Why Why is he doing something that I think earlier you described as, as ridiculous, to use a, put a word in your mouth maybe? Well, you used a really good analogy last time around. I remember it, you know, when you talked about the gold rush. Mm.
2: You know, you want to be the scout that finds the great big nugget of gold. There's gold in them, there are hills. You know, you want to be that person who strikes strikes gold, don't you? And if this is the one, if this is that scout's golden nugget, that scout does very well out of that, you know potentially, either reputationally or financially. I'm not quite sure how scouting works. There are courses that you can take. I mean, there have been courses created by various of the football authorities over here where you can become a fully qualified scout through various training mo- modules towards talent ID and learning about talent ID. And all of this stuff is covered. I know that because I worked with some of the people at the FA on, on those modules. Um, and so the education is out there but it doesn't seem to necessarily change the behaviour because, as we said earlier, the incentives are just so strong Mm. and it's very difficult
3: to resist. Would it help if the person's failures were given as much prominence as the one in a thousand successes?
2: I'd have thought so because everything's based on survivorship bias, isn't it?
3: Yeah, because there's a phenomenon I've seen in punditry where political pundits, for instance, will make an obscene number of incorrect guesses about what's going to happen but they are never ever held to account for them but if they get one in 30 right they're heralded as a political genius and it seems to me that the same thing happens in sport
2: yeah yeah it's um i've heard it referred to pretty uh very unpolitically correctly as either ugly ugly boyfriend or girlfriend syndrome don't for, you don't remember the ones that 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 you didn't particularly get on with. You remember the ones that that you know that you really, really liked and you really, really were really were after. Similar sort of scenario where I think it's a sort of strange version of the availability heuristic, isn't it? Whereby, you know, it doesn't matter how many times you get it wrong as long as you get it right once.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what's in play there. Um so, I mean, I want to work towards some kind of practical understanding of what the way forward is, and and I know that's a massive question and there may not be one. On the show last time, you spoke many times actually, but we have to ask ourselves what we want sport to mean and why do we do this. Where are you sitting on the answer to that question now?
2: Well, I guess you have to look at, I guess it's very easy for me to throw my hands up in the air and, and, and sort of say, oh, you know, the system is completely destroyed. We're talking about one particular sport in the main here, right, that has a particular structure. And it is. this is also in the UK. I'm not saying it's necessarily worldwide, albeit I do believe the problem is becoming further, further you know kind of exacerbated in different contexts with different sports depending on the sort of dominant sport that is part of the nationhood or the culture and this that and the other however in this particular case there are some extreme extreme forces at play that that are challenging us um but that what we shouldn't probably do is to say let's not take that particular context and those particular situations and and say that that therefore means that the rest of the whole sporting system is basically just damned forever, and there's no way back. You know, in the US particularly, you know, there's a lot of people, again, you know, kind of part of this sort of community, part of my echo chamber, who have for a long time been remonstrating against the sort of ultra commercialization of youth sport. Now, it's not quite as rampant as you would see, say, in this sort of, you know, kind of Premier League, professionalised football context, but nonetheless in many contexts in the US you know sport is increasingly becoming something that is so commercialized that it's essentially pricing out of you know a, a huge amount of young people and it's just happening kind of the world over now it's not all necessarily a bad thing because one of the things that commercialization is also bringing is a, an increase in standards so i also talked last time around a little bit about how You know, a lot is being placed on the volunteer to be able to do all this sort of stuff. Well, actually, if an individual is sort of essentially operating commercially, then they can be held to higher standards. And therefore, as a result of that, you do actually see some very, very high quality, commercially driven um, kind of youth sport providers out there. And I actually probably without a great deal of evidence i would actually say they are in the main i think the the, the reality is is that we have there's a few there is you know a, a, a decent proportion of sort of what you might call bad actors out there who are un, sort of maligning the rest of the well-meaning and probably relatively high quality sort of commercial providers over here in the uk they're sort of colloquially referred to as white van man usually because it is usually a man. Um, and it's the individual who's got all the sports kit in the back of the van who goes around the schools and the clubs and this, that and the other, providing the coaching sessions and all that sort of stuff. Well, often it's said in a kind of very derogatory sort of tone, but in reality, those people are very often very good and provide high-quality sport and physical activity provision for a lot of young people who would otherwise struggle to get access to it. So on some levels, I think we, we shouldn't castigate all of that. The thing, though, that I do think that is that needs to be done, and this is, you know, without wanting to sort of delving into the philosophy too much again, is to just begin to do this, to have this conversation about why is it we provide physical what, – what is important about physical activity for young people? And I think, for t- again, you know, too much of it is outcome driven, as opposed to visit phys- sport and physical activity is brilliant in so many ways for so many people, uh, um, and and it should be provided in the best possible way so that more and more people get get to have that experience. Because the sad sad fact is, very few get a really high quality experience. Most get an average one, and far too many, in my view, get a poor one. So actually, what we want to try and do is to try and provide at. at <laughs> at least an average one and certainly more good ones because if you can get good ones, then that's the road towards a lifelong physical activity habit, et cetera, et cetera, as we talked about. And the problem we've got, you see, is because the sort of dynamics of youth sport are very much driven around either individual outcome in the form of some kind of representative activity or progression to the next stage or scholarship or whatever it might be, That's the only kind of metric people tend to use for youth sports, So, you know, that's what we're driving towards. As opposed, as we said before, recognising that if we provide the most fabulous holistic experience we possibly can, we're we're not only supporting that individual's lifelong sort of love of physical activity, but we also give them the best possible springboard chance of something else if that was to materialise for them. So, again, I'm coming back to this reappraisal
3: yeah are there any are there any sports that you you mentioned boxing last time are there any sports that have managed to come together and achieve that holistic success because it seems to me still i keep coming back to this issue is the sports are in competition with one another and you gave a really well i think it's quite an amusing but it's an unforeseen outcome of your well-intentioned plan to incentivize participation is that they actually compete against one another even more? So I guess I'm asking: Have we ever had good examples of collaborative sport that achieves uh, that utopic yeah, well, vision?
2: Yeah. Well. Well.
3: So one of the things is is that
2: recognizing the influence, the environmental influences on sports policymaking, is an important factor, and therefore recognizing how funding can be distributed. Um, you know from my perspective as a as a funding provider um, is an important part of that and something that through the writing of a new through the writing of our new strategy which is entitled Uniting the movement and it's a very deliberate I think use of use of words. you know one of the things we're talking about is movements, but also we're talking about uniting a movement in movement and part of that goal is to, um, recognize that uh, the limitations of the approach to policy and funding and the limitations that's had and the ways in which that might be readdressed. And one of the ways of doing that is to actually uh, essentially sort of build, I guess, what you might call a bit of a hackney phrase, but you want to build a coalition of the willing. And some of that is deliberately presenting uh, organizations with opportunities for collaboration. Now I, it doesn't come easy because you can't kind of change you know fifteen years of, of of policy and culture within organizations that are pretty used to you know kind of working within their own silos and then all of a sudden engender a level of trust amongst these organizations to say, yes, actually, it's no longer about you know, you've got these numbers, you've got these numbers, and we're going to compare the two and then therefore there's going to be a winner and a loser. But actually, we're all in this together. And if we can all if we can all see, a growth in engagement and participation and quality experiences and these sorts of things we can all the the nation benefits and everybody benefits because we might be able to then make a stronger case for the role of physical activity to play within education within within public health within the economy Us all going out there and doing that individually as organizations we haven't been able to sort of make the, the case and as a result of that you know, it's always almost like, you know, the, the 20th priority on the list of government priorities, even though we know physical activity is going to play a role in all these different, different realms. So um, the goal has been, if you like, through this sort of new strategic approach to actually engage organisations, not as individual organisations, albeit, yes, you have to have conversations about their needs, but actually talking about what is their systemic role so instead of just saying, like, what do you do as an organisation? What's your key role as a governing organisation, for example? But say, what role can you play systemically across the landscape? Immediately, that just that question itself changes the narrative, changes the dynamic about the ways in which organisations might work. I don't want to bore you all with sports policy, because that's like, you know, that could really get you into the into the weeds. But it is a fundamental shift. And it does, and interestingly... We're only at the early stages of this because, you know, you recognise that much of this is this system is of, of at least in part, our creation. So, therefore, we've got to try and readdress some of that sort of engagement and some of the ways in which people begin to think. Now, a lot of that also comes from the perspective that you also need to work with organisations to understand where they are in terms of their people, in terms of the culture, in terms of where they are policy-wise. And so a big part of the shift of emphasis and mindset around the value of sport comes from an increased, increased diversity. So there's a big, big move towards a- addressing the stubborn inequalities that still exist amongst you know, the people who kind of manage sports policymaking and sports development systems. The majority of them are still like me, male, pale and stale. So the reality is, is that we want to try and increase the diversity out there. Why? Not just because it's a it's kind of like a moral imperative that we need to make sport a more welcoming and inclusive place. And therefore, it would actually benefit from a talent perspective, it would benefit from a participation perspective, but we also need to increase diversity at all layers of the system, system builders, policymakers, boards, leaders. Why why is that matter? Because then you're bringing people with different lived experiences to the table. Then you can bring them out this reappraisal about what's important for sport. So I think what you're seeing, Ross, is a shift from – Sport development to sport for development. And it's going to be interesting over the next 10 years. I I think this is the sort of biggest challenge of my career as we shift the culture. Um, So right at the start of it, I describe it as being at base camp. You know, we're literally just walking around, working out what we need to get Mm. in order to go on the expedition because right now we're wearing a pack-a-mac and we're just about to climb Everest. So we've got to give everybody the tools and the resources to be able to begin the expedition.
3: I wonder if, as you were speaking about that, my first thought is, Let's take what you ended at: that sport for development, as opposed to sports development. Sport development fulfills a purpose; it develops athletes for the top end of sports, so that they can be playing for Arsenal at the Emirates at the age of 21, 17 years from now, in theory. <laughs> uh, or it means being an Olympic medalist uh, 19 years from now to a kid who's eight years old today. Do you ever, do you ever think maybe that you've got to change it from the top down because? I think now, for instance, of in the last year, you've been at the forefront or your front row seat to it. But I mean, the number of sports that have been accused of bullying, intimidation, toxic culture. And now we're not even talking children. We're talking in their Olympic athletes. I saw a piece the day after you shared that four-year-old footballer about jockeys talking about weight issues and eating disorders. Yesterday, a report came out of Oregon where a group of women, I think six of them, said that they felt um, discriminated against and bullied because they were being sent for regular body composition assessments and being effectively held to account for that. You would know Mary Kane is suing Alberta Salazar for $20 for a very similar thing with that Oregon project do you ever do you ever think that the best approach might be to change it at the top and then hope it filters down or do you think changing that diversity at the bottom is the way to go
2: um well
3: i i i don't think it i don't think I i don't
2: think well you used this phrase last time i i think potentially that's one of those false binaries I think you've got to do both i think you need a cultural reappraisal mm. and you do that through communication and messaging and advocacy and And all those sorts of things, you know, on that sort of campaigning scale, as I mentioned last time around when we talked about things like This Girl Can, where you create this cultural reappraisal. And then you want to create demand. So the the abuse scandals, you know, there's been historic abuse in sport for a long period of time. And many of the abuse scandals that we've seen really hit prominence in the last, say, 18, 20 months. Um, A lot of those have been driven by um, the fact that individuals have spoken out on sometimes things that are not necessarily relevant but it's then led to others speaking uh, speaking out and be more prepared to speak out and now we're beginning to see you know the kind of the I, I guess the the, the the truth of some of this and now people sort of public opinion if you like is switching and people are now challenging that sport development you know as in you know mm outcome and medals and all that sort of stuff, that narrative, and the maladaptive behaviors that go alongside it. And so it's the public opinion that's actually changing at the top. I mean, we're seeing a raft of resignations in different sports, certainly over here, Mm. of chief executives or whatever it is or or whoever. Or we're seeing, you know, people stepping down and being and people, people moving on. Because the expectation levels are shifting and it's a cultural shift and the demands are led by the public. Now that's not been driven by you know, a meaningful campaign that somebody came out with. It's actually because of some very, very negative publicity that a range of sports have found themselves in the midst of. Now, the problem you've got is there are some systemic barriers that's, that, reduced, that that reduce that have actually created this, cult, this this culture. And one of them is, and actually I've been studying this at the moment is, whenever these things happen, a review takes place and the review makes a series of recommendations for that particular sport. And yet, The recommendations probably apply across the board. And actually, so we actually need a systemic shift, not just in the ways in which people are engaged and supported and these sorts of things. But then that needs to go alongside this sort of, if you like, new perspective as to what the purpose of those engagement activities are. And so I'm not saying it's easy. I mean, I, like I said, I described it as a sort of, you know, climbing Everest. It is proper moonshot-style expedition, this one. Mm. This is this is right out there. But the state, you know, it's almost like the, the, the wheels are in motion. And so actually, in many cases, what you're now seeing is policymakers almost like scrambling to respond. But strangely enough, almost responding in the wrong way, which is usually from the perspective of how do we minimize the reputational risk to the organization instead of saying, my, my chief executive actually has got a really good analogy on this. There was a terrible plane crash about 20-odd years ago, and the CEO of the airline stood in front of the burning wreckage, and he said, sometimes you've just got to stand in front of the plane. And actually, it's a really good metaphor for the ways in which I think sports policymakers need to think about this, Is which is we need to learn lessons and change things, and we need to learn them culturally, and we need to change them that way, as opposed to always thinking, well, how do we how do we minimise the damage to the organisation? That's got to be one of the ways in which things shift. So the changing of the leadership is actually bringing people to a different idea around what is leadership in sports organizations. And actually, that's an interesting change as well. So you're seeing it happen at both ends, but I actually think it's the from the bottom that's driving the top top change.
3: Who does this very well around the world? (laughs) Are there any countries or sports that you think uh, you would hold up as a model and say, if we could do this half as well as these people we would be on we would be at base camp as opposed to the base of the mountain I'm I'm drawn
2: towards some of the Scandinavian countries now this might also be to do with the fact that you know they have or until relatively recently you know have been nations with high levels of you know what you might call you know, kind of social liberalism driving their sort of political ideals and the culture mm. of their organization. And they've been very, you know, kind of egalitarian, open, inclusive. But I do remember being really impressed Ross. So an old, um, say a, a previous employer of mine, a previous boss of mine, a guy called Peter Matson.
3: Yes. Um, who- I, I met him, I actually met Peter Matson through you yeah, and then I went to Stockholm once to give a talk at their high performance conference, and he told me a very interesting thing, which you might be about to say. So let me let me allow you to finish before I add it unnecessarily. <laughs> uh,
2: well, one of the things I know they did in Sweden, this is like government policy, but also this is across the board. So so Peter heads up the Swedish Sports Confederation, which essentially is almost like equivalent equivalent organisation to mine, uh, albeit with an elite elite aspect as well as the participation aspect and I remember going to do a conference a bit like yours and they were talking about these concepts around what does sport mean for the Swedish nation and they were very bought into the idea of the UN Convention of the Rights of the Child which now been signed into Swedish law Um, and they were and they've always been very much aligned to sort of this notion of rights and this and the other and they had a goal to be the most you know kind of the powerful sporting nation and the talk I gave actually was you look at the UK and you see all the medals. But you need to understand that there is consequences to that as well. So I was I, I guess I was doing a bit of a whistleblowing talk. Um anyway, I don't I don't know what Peter said to you. It might be on a different level.
3: So what he said to me, we went out for dinner uh the one night and he was there with uh, a woman who used to be Nick Felder's caddy. Her name was Fanny Gunderson, has I got that right? Sunison. Sunnison, yes. And we were talking about what their big challenges were. And he said to me it was interesting that their challenge was they were trying to build up individual excellence in communities where that was actually frowned upon. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, in Sweden, just culturally, we we try to encourage people not to stick out too much, to um, to become too attention-seeking, to hog the limelight, to become famous. And so... When we try and inspire Olympic athletes to be the best in the world, they actually have to break free from their communities before they can do it. And it struck me that they had the opposite problem to what we have in South Africa. We're trying to build people up and lift them out of mediocrity and they actually have an interesting... That's what you were referring to earlier as the egalitarian bit, I assume.
2: Yeah, I mean, um, funnily enough, James Vaughan, who's at AIK Stockholm, is doing some really exciting and interesting work around creating... A brand new model for a football academy. Um, and AIK is like the you know, Manchester United, I guess, of Swedish football, very, very well known, and they are doing it a different way. But James Vaughan's whole research piece is all about socio- the socio cultural dynamics of nationhood and its role in the way people embrace sport, you know, and you mentioned, say the South African culture and the the way people do that and the Australian culture, you know, he spent a lot of time, for example, in, in the, in Barcelona, in the Basque country and talks about, you know, the way, you know, kind of skillfulness is prized, uh, creativity is prized and that's part of sort of Basque culture. And that's, mm. that, in, that permeates then coaching and children's sport And then, you know, you compare that, for example, with, say, the UK or particularly England, you know, where we're still dominated, I think, by the sort of the idea of, you know, the sort of public school idea of muscular Christianity, you know, where, you know... Everybody gets together and we, you know, we play rugby and it's all good and everybody's a team and, you know, and all those sorts of things. And those notions, almost like industrialised notions of the role of sport in society, it's still very, very prevalent. And as a result of that, we don't necessarily prize creativity, skill, guile, all those sorts of things. We prize hard We prize hard workers. You know, we, we we prize people who are dedicated and committed and dogged. And they're the people who are our sporting heroes. We look upon those creative geniuses with some suspicion sometimes. So it's interesting actually how different cultural dynamics within sport, within countries, and then that permeates then the sort of political landscape, then also influences things like policy making, but
3: also then just right down to the way coaches coach. So, yeah, it's really interesting. Do you think you could take this message? Because I'm now mindful I'm, you've got podcast listeners listening to you say this and they're thinking, that's great, but I'm not going to change the culture of my country, but they can change the culture potentially of their school. Is that, is that the kind of thing a, a willing, interested parent or coach should be doing is saying, I'm going to start with my team, then the sport, then my school, and we can see if we can grow it out? Well, this is one of the reasons
2: I'm so passionate about the role of coaches, Ross, because coaches can create environments and actually – Coaches, you often see, you know, some of the coaches out there who, you know, have performed, you know, seeming miracles, so to speak, you know, um, you know, kind of come from nowhere to achieve amazing things have done so by virtue of the fact that, you know, they, they started with a question. And the question often is, what are we here for? What are we trying to do? Where are we trying to get to? What is the goals that we're trying to achieve? What do we collectively believe in? More importantly, you know, what do we believe in? And, and all those sorts of things are, are, are drivers towards the creation of a kind of, if you like, a microculture, if you like, within a small area. And then sometimes that, has, that can sort of spring out and go, go wider and wider and wider because others then begin to mimic or they begin to ask those questions. And so you do see some fabulous you know, people who've been to mind, for example, Steve Kerr, you know, who sometimes is castigated for some of the things that he does because they seem so against the kind of orthodoxy. But interestingly enough, I think then as you start to see these different cultures start to pop up and you see different ways of being and lots of different ideas emerging from different organizations, you sort of create, you break orthodoxy, you create a heterodoxy. And that's really interesting and exciting. And I'm learning a lot about heterodoxy at the moment and um, trying not to get into break from one orthodoxy just to get into a new orthodoxy to try and try and maintain my kind of breadth of understanding from different perspectives but it's really difficult because of the propensity we all have for just delving into either rabbit holes or echo chambers
3: where where would you recommend coaches listening to this go to learn about these approaches because you're obviously right in the middle of the highway and you are constantly reading new papers i've seen you tweet quotes from a few academic papers on these theories where what would you advise a coach and this is this goes for anywhere in the world i mean how do they create knowledge and creativity the way that you have to do in your job um well i'm i'm tempted to say that um it's it's never
2: i don't think it's ever been easier to be able to tap into new sources of insight um I mean, you know, not, not everybody necessarily has a propensity to delve into the research themselves. I happen to have a, a particular level of curiosity that, I don't know, fight, dr- drives me towards answering some of the questions that I'm proposed, you, know, quest- you know, if I, if I get posed by a question. In fact, you know, just before we jumped on this call, I was having a conversation about the relative merits of streaming within education systems with a, a friend of ours who was over. And, um, you know, I thought to myself, I need to read up on that because I'm sure I've read something once, but I really need to delve into that. So these are the ways as questions get raised, and then I start to, you know, look around and find new sources of information. But information isn't like, you know, been, it, it, we're not short of information anymore, are we? I mean, mm. it's like everywhere in the palm of your hand, 24-7 all the time. A bigger challenge, I think, that, you know, coaches, parents, people in clubs, people in sports organizations have is actually filtering because there's a lot of noise now. And so identifying and filtering kind of the things that you think are going to be relevant without overly kind of narrowing your field so much that you end up just becoming driven by a particular ideal. You know, so I've said before, I often have young coaches coming up to me saying, oh, oh, what well, you know, can you give me kind of a list of things to read? And I'm like, no, <laughs> I said, you know, when I started out, right, I used to go to the library and get books out and stuff. Cause like that was a thing. And and now, you know, you've got a, you know, you've got stuff out there. Right. So I, I want to see people putting a little bit of energy in a little bit of effort in and working at it. But there are people out there who are curating, you know, their job is a curate, you create, they're curating, they're curating ideas. This is what you do on this show. You know, you create ideas with people, not necessarily every idea do you 100% agree with. Um, but sometimes, you know, and you ask questions, you challenge orthodoxy, you know, you're posing ideas. And through that process, you know, you're raising people's awareness of different concepts and different ways of thinking and ways of being. And and I think that's actually, but I wouldn't just, you know, you, you used a great phrase. I can't remember what the, t- what the actual Latin term was, but you said, you know, when we were at the Royal Society, you know, there was the inscription that said, you know, take nobody's word for it. And I think that's true, right? You know, listen to these ideas, but don't take our word for it. Use it as a prompt for further curiosity and further, um, you know, kind of further inquiry to become you don't have to become an expert you don't have to delve in you don't have to be a phd or a professor right because that's where you have to be right into the you know you have to be properly committed to a particular field and that brings its own narrowness because it just that's just the way kind of the academic world works so i'm not saying you have to be like that you just have to have enough information across a broad range of different ideas how much of information is enough well that's in, that's another another point in, t- in time but i quite like the concept and this is to talk to um uh this to talk to David Epstein's book about being a neo generalist. You know, I do like that concept because you know, I I would argue as a coach particularly I I can't be an expert in everything, but I have to have enough expertise in everything to be able to make reasoned judgments with others out there. And uh and so that's, that's the thing that thing the goal. So it's, it's out there, there's plenty of people out there writing, speaking, talking, prepared to share information for no cost whatsoever or little cost whatsoever. And so that's my place. That's where I go.
3: Yeah. A couple points. So uh, one is the, the academic coaching literature seems to me to be very heavy to read and full of jargon and presupposes quite a large base of academic knowledge. So I don't think that would be the place to go. Sometimes even some of the things you tweet um, lose me with some of the jargon. <laughs> um, so it's, it's, it's finding people who, as you, you call them, curators of information and then who translate it that I think is particularly valuable. And you're right, between social media and the internet, there are now more people there than you need. And the question is, who do you filter out more than who do you look at?
2: Yeah, I'm conscious of that jargon. You're right. You know, we do get into our own language. And there's a conversation sometimes amongst the community around how much should we use that, in, use that language and how much should we change it to make it more approachable? Mm. And the question is, is like, you know, how do you learn something if you're never really exposed to it? So I sometimes deliberately present stuff that's like sometimes a bit jargonistic in order to try and hopefully get somebody to sort of get a bit curious, but it doesn't always work. Mm. But you're right. My I, th- I see my role as being an interpreter. Either two ways. One is allowing people to tell their stories and share their experiences or research with others, but doing it through a... Affordable format, which seems to be much more approachable. People can understand it more readily. Sometimes I'm asking the daft questions, if you like, mostly because I actually, they are the questions that come to mind. But also, I'm asking the questions on behalf of my audience sometimes because I know that some of these individuals won't necessarily be able to articulate some of these things because it's dense stuff. So we're trying to get it to a point where people can take it on board and understand it in a bit more of an approachable way. But it's not easy because, like you say, I mean, you know, when you, I mean, I, if i start delving in i'm not a i'm not a um i'm not a particularly strong on the sort of hard science side i'm a social scientist so when you you get going into your physiological realm i'm gone right i'm lost but Mm. you can convey it in a story in these in this kind of in a very different way than if you had to get through the research yourself so that's that's part of what i think people like
3: we do people like us do speaking of questions i'm gonna use that as a segue to ask some people who are watching this but i did get an email this morning from brian russell who's also a patron and he sent this to me via the message service um, saying he won't make the chat but has a couple questions so i'm going to use this to kick the questions off he says i'm involved in helping coach our gaelic games for under sixes many of the kids are young not yet four and the focus is very appropriate functional movement stuff which is fun and non-competitive i've noticed that there is a desire from the more traditional style coaches to move to games-based approach when would you consider this to be appropriate when should you start with constraint-based coaching for kids so young and finally should you teach technique or should you allow kids to develop their own movement solutions I think he's listened to me before. I think he knows the answer to this. Uh um, probably does, but uh, <laughs> all those who haven't teed well, it up for you. Uh,
2: so, uh, having worked with fo- under fours or four-year-olds and, and above myself for a number of years, um, I think I describe the role when you're a coach there is you're predominantly an entertainer. Yeah. I don't buy into the idea of, funct- of, of, if I'm honest, I don't buy into the, and this, and this might kind of be like particularly um, uh, controversial for your audience, but I don't buy into fundamental movement skills at all. I, I, I just just don't think that the research stacks up, if I'm totally honest. And, and fundamental for what? What, for movement in life? right i agree yeah let's let's make sure that people are able to move effectively in life but you know fundamental for a lifelong physical activity habit what does that look like doesn't that depend on the activity yes but what's that going to look like so you know so are these are there are there these foundational movements that one must be one must experience or be taught as a means by which to then foster greater athleticism later on amongst five year olds i don't i don't buy it it's too linear for me it's not it doesn't map on to the way humans develop and you know and, and also how do we know that these supposedly generalized movement patterns are you know kind of the fundamental basis of you know everything else that someone's going to do and that's not to say that there aren't some activities that we might do that might be valuable as a means of engagement but i would argue that it would be much better if they were Done in a very functional way. And I don't mean functional to the activity, but I mean sort of functional to an activity. So for example, if you take a game, any any form of a game, and you know, a game has a function, you know, there's a goal to it. And if you play that game, then there are ways in which you might move that will help you to play that game in a different way to another way. And you wanna to, want to explore those different ways of moving to be able to play that game. So the idea of a kind of a games-based approach to, to the development of whatever we're going to call functional or fundamental movements is appealing because it's engaging as a as a starting point. Mm. And there's a great organisation that we work with called Boeing who do just this. You know, so it's not a singular sport. There might be some sports equipment that's used, but it's actually just various different game forms that require young people to move in different ways. But because there's an actual Activity that we're doing, it's, there's a level of engagement that's just different from fundamental movements. Now, so that that's a form of constraints. We use equipment constraints or spatial constraints, or uh, we might use... Um, you know that what the people can do and the rules that, are, that, that govern what they can do as a means by which to design a game form that would then allow people to move in different ways so we're creating a landscape of movement possibility that then allows individuals to operate within that now of course all these children have got different levels of growth and maturation even at the age of four and as a result of that five six seven as a result of that we definitely want them to be able to explore their own individual movement capabilities within this landscape that's called a game and I think that's really beautiful and very and very exploratory and really powerful, as opposed to, I think, sometimes the problem we often face is people seem to think that they've got to conform to some sort of idealized movement pattern, i.e. a technique that if they don't learn to do in the right way in the, and I know this is blasphemy in some quarters of the academic community, right? But if they don't move to these sort of norms and these ideals, then, oh, God, that's going to be particularly deleterious. And they, oh, they might get injured. Oh, they might not they might not sort of be optimal athletes later on. I just think we need to be more natural with it. You know, much more playful. I use play as an example, but almost deliberate play to use John Cote's idea. I call it playparation. You know, let's let's actually be play, do play and enjoyment, and then do it in a way that's kind of clever with some design to it that actually then allows, ex- still, still fosters exploration, but it just narrows it down enough to create different movement possibilities. I could go on forever, Ross, so I'll stop because I'm going to get some of the questions.
3: Is it curious, though, that we started this conversation talking about how adults make absurd decisions like signing four-year-olds to the academy because of that survivorship bias and they see one case and they think it must be the norm i reckon you could probably name a dozen unconventional elite athletes who didn't learn the traditional textbook way who have evolved their own technical abilities but that hasn't that hasn't achieved the same level of survivorship bias to change behaviors right is that just a control thing i would
2: argue yeah i would argue that you, you said this once at a conference that I ran for England Rugby. I, I've got, I want to say it's the same conference that Carol Dweck spoke at. I could be wrong. But you said that you know, when you look at the economics of it, you end up creating a system that produces a lot of good athletes as opposed to a system that, provi- provide, that produces a few excellent ones. And I think the problem is, is that people are overly systematizing things because they feel as if that's the right thing to do. Whereas if you go the other way, it's a much more naturalistic process that, you know, may or may not sort of deliver what you're looking to deliver. So again, we're using the notions of sort of Taylorism, an industrialized approach mm. to the development of human beings. And I'm always taken by Sir Ken Robinson's quote, where he talked about, I'm to paraphrase him now, he talks about saying, you are not, it's not a, mechan- human flourishing is not a mechanical process. You know, it's, it's a it's a natural one. So you need to think more like a farmer and create the conditions where, you know, where the, the, the kind of the best crops can flourish if you like. And I don't think mechanization necessarily is the way to go. Um, you know, I could be, I could be swayed. I, I mean, you know, I could be told I'm completely wrong, but like you said, so many fantastic athletes have emerged from non-traditional, non-structured, informal contexts. And they have a, just a point of difference that no one else has seen by virtue of the fact that they came from that different kind of non-structured environment and developed their own movement solutions and they're the, they're the they're the athletes that excite so do we want these you know individuals who can all, almost to a point of being semi robotic I'm not sure we do
3: right but the problem is we we see that and we say I wish we could create that but then we've already lost the battle because we want to create it and so it's almost a human nature that we wish to design something in that has to actually evolve without design. And it's I remember that conference, it's that that's the dilemma between efficiency as in let's have lots of people who are similar at this level, or effectiveness is here. And it's it's also the difference between a hundred photocopies or one mona Lisa.
2: Yeah, but it's it's also and you're right. I mean, it's a good point, isn't it? Yeah, you want to create it. Mm. So how do you how do you do it in a way that's you know organic enough, if you like? <laughs> What's organic enough? Um, and but but my view is, and it depends on people's perspectives on this. But actually, if we were to operate, if we were to have more informal experiences. Uh, deformalized experiences for a longer period of time, we would give more opportunity for things to be able to take their own shape, right. and then we could systematize later, maybe.
3: Sure, but I think then you know that's the problem: is you're asking adults to relinquish some degree of control and influence over the situation, and that's the thing they can't let go of. So, so those those rare—I don't know what you want to call them—purple cars or whatever you wish to label them. Those exceptional talents who do things differently. We can't buy into that as the norm because it would it would force us to actually step out of the way as opposed to being in the way. <laughs> the yeah, and the one of the one of the funny the- things is when I was with the sevens, we used to watch Fiji with a great deal of envy because they they played sevens rugby like they were playing. This was in, in the Olympic Games; they play as if they were on the beach, and we used to always say that their coach is trying to teach the players not to do things by instinct, whereas we have to try and teach our players to do things that they do instinctively. <laughs> so they had exactly the opposite problem we had. And it was always, it because we were so structured and we felt like we had to be because if we let the players at that stage sort of play on the fly, it would, it would have been a disaster. So it's just very interesting how they evolved and we were built. <laughs> yeah uh are there any any questions from those of you who are watching and you can either raise your hand and i'll unmute you or you can type your question into the chat box and i'll read it out i'm happy to take it either way mother's day is around
1: the corner find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from blue nile from timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones blue nile has something she'll adore need a fast most items can ship overnight Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off
3: by going to blue nile.com. That's blue nile.com. Gonna give you a moment. Anyone, anyone of the patrons, this is your this is your moment. I see some people might be typing. Um, Stuart where do you just I've, I've been meaning to ask you I see there's a hand I'll come to that in a moment Thanks Finn I remember there was a phase Shortly after 10,000 hours And then the specialization thing Got a little bit debunked And then there was a whole flurry of People who came along with A better way to do things One of them was Dweck With growth mindset As opposed to fixed mindset Then uh, who, who was it with Grit? Um, du- that's um,
2: um, that'll come to me in a minute as well. Oh, that's annoying.
3: Du- I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. Uh, come on, Duckworth. That's Duckworth. It. Carla Groom. Thanks, Carla. Thank you. <laughs> this is why we love our patrons. Thanks, Carla. That's right. It was Angela. It was Angela Duckworth. Yes, that's it. Yeah. So then there was growth mindset and fixed mindset. Then there was grit. Where do you stand on those models of? Um, what do you want to call them even models of development now well, there's been a lot of um
2: as with anything you know psycho- psychology has gone through a bit of a, what they call the replication crisis, don't they where various studies aren't aren't being replicated yeah um, and I actually think with um with any of these things it's a little bit like you know anyone would say is that the problem with them all is um and I don't think this is necessarily a problem of the authors, I think it's a problem of the way. Sometimes these ideas are presented and then sometimes the way that society grabs hold of them and turns them into something else. So, you know, I don't think Angela Duckworth would ever necessarily say, or for that matter, um, Carol Dweck would ever say that their ideas are the magic bullet. Um, and all you've got to do is have a growth mindset or have grit and then you're sort of, you know, you're, you're, you're set for success. Um, I think what, you, what they'd say, though, is because all of their things are done is you know through this sort of retrospective study. So I don't think they've ever, ever looked at that. There's been quite a few studies I've read recently where, you know, very much challenged something like, say, growth mindset because, you know, they did a study and they looked with a group, a group of children and they didn't see any attainment and this, that, and the other. But I actually think the interesting thing about any of these things, by the way, is the message, right? And the message for me that's really impactful and really interesting is certain environments, and I am very driven by environments, uh, certain environments can, not in all cases, but can do more to increase um, the potential of a group of human beings um, than others. So, for example, like one of the things I really, I'm really drawn to by um, Carol Dweck's work is, you know, her idea behind the growth mindset was actually partly because she saw some real danger in. The self-esteem movement, this idea that if we go around just basically telling young people that they can be anything and they can be brilliant, that that's it, that's all they need. And her idea behind the growth mindset was basically to say, well, actually... What that might do potentially is actually create this idea of a fixed mindset, which is individuals who are constantly told that they could be brilliant and they could do these things when faced with adversity don't have the tools associated with dealing with that adversity. And as a result of that, that creates downstream consequences such as aversion, cheating and all sorts of other things. So her goal was to say, well, actually, what we actually need to do is to create a bit of a reappraisal where we actually value struggle. I remember the quote, I will never forget it, um, where she said, you know, nobody comes home from work and says, honey, I've had the most greatest struggle today. So actually, her goal is to say, let's actually value struggle and create environments that actually develop an idea around this idea of working hard towards a goal and actually doing it in a way that's really nurturing. And the use of language is a key message in the growth mindset idea. The idea of instead of just talking about attainment and outcome and results, something that I've been railing against for ages, we focus much more on the energy, the strategy, and the work that goes into the whatever the outcome might be, instead of just looking at the outcome. And those, those are interesting ideas that I think are worthy of further study. So rather than going around debunking those concepts, my view would be let's just, let's just take that central idea and explore with it more. And I guess, so that's where I stand on those sorts of things is to I always look at them as what's good in these ideas. Now, I don't want to get onto the to 10,000 hours uh, the and the um, Anders Ericsson debate because you and I could have a very different debate, Ross, and maybe that's a tee up for part three or something, right? But the central message in some of Ericsson's work uh, that I think has been lost a little bit. It's not really about practice quantity. It's about practice quality. And again, you know, this idea of how does one go about practicing deliberately is an interesting idea that requires further exploration. We yeah. will go into it further, but it's the ideas that are central that are important, and they're lost sometimes in the media reporting.
3: Yeah, and as you're saying that, I'm just thinking culturally, certainly in South Africa, there are different cultures that would respond completely differently to praise as opposed to criticism and to failure as opposed to success and I suppose that's the skill that the coach then has to learn but the problem sport was making is it was trying to systematize I hate this jargon but there it is those ways of thinking in a way that then over swung the pendulum too far and then it swung back and then it swung too far and then it swung back and it, it felt like sport was just chasing the next car that a dog chasing a car then another car then another car and it didn't know what to do when it caught them.
2: Yeah, buffeted by the next, the next, next, next storm or the next wind, you know, mm. comes along and you get off course, and then you can get back. As opposed to sort of, if you've got the philosophical, and this is takes me back to philosophy, if you've got your philosophical roots about what you believe to be important, I think that gives you he- helpful navigational tools to then withstand some of that buffeting.
3: Yeah, yeah. Finn has a question. He's got his hand up. Finn, good to see you again. I'm going to uh, ask you to unmute.
1: Hello. There you yeah. go,
3: Finn. Thanks very much. Fire away.
1: So, yeah, I, first point I wanted to talk about was not really a question, but um, I mean, I was obviously brought up in the UK and, and have gone through, in, in Scotland, various sporting systems. Um, and I remember like a pretty early experience in rugby at 14 or 15, not being selected for some form of pathway. And because of the way it was basically set up it was immediate turn off for rugby i was like oh okay well i'm not good enough then which was no big deal because i had or in my mind wasn't a big deal because i went into cycling instead which i really enjoy but looking back now and sort of imagining telling a 15 year old oh, you should probably not continue with that sport is just ridiculous um but obviously so there's clearly a lot to do at like you've talked about both the top and bottom of all sports to try and Keep people playing one question i had actually was to do with essentially what you talked about four-year-old footballer science for Arsenal at the very beginning um one of my family members has a son who um is now in the very young six to seven year old academy of a football team the dad was a footballer for this team as was the or as was the grandfather as well so football is in his blood but I am not going to say I'm worried because he clearly loves football, but how do you possibly broach the subject of don't just get don't just go down the football route keep other options open because it's really tricky not to sort of try and impart something when it's obviously not your child and you don't want to come across as you know more than them because of course their family members have played professional football and' I've, you know realistically I don't know more than them but you want to say something, how, how do you talk about it?
2: Good question. Um, there's uh, well, hi, anyway. Hi, uh, hey Finn, thank, uh, thanks for, uh, for joining us. And, uh, I'm glad you mentioned you were involved in cycling cause that explains what looks like the torture equipment behind you. Um, so, uh, uh, what was I going to say? Um, yeah, uh, that's not an easy thing. I, I totally understand where you're coming from. Um, and i i would love to have a, an easy answer all i can do is share with you some of the approaches that i've either used or seen um now one of the one one of the things i think is quite interesting is um presenting people with some uh with with some interesting different ideas so for example um there is a lot of interesting research at the moment about this concept of what you what are described as like, say donor sports So that is where – I'm not sure I necessarily like the concept, but it it, it does have some interesting ideas behind it. So the idea that, you know, you might do some activities that actually support then future growth in the central activity. So, for example, you know – because gymnastics is a really powerful, is, is has a lot of you know kind of great sort of fundamental fundamental movements built within them, whatever they are if they exist. But as a movement capability idea, gymnastics, parkour, you know, trampolining, these sorts of body management style, uh, for that matter, many of the martial arts that you know foster things like balance and kinesthesia and, and gliding and all these different other ideas of movement that those can actually be a donor for a, a central sport. Now, I don't think with a very young child we necessarily want a central sport. However, this is a cultural, do- c- culturally dominant scenario whereby there is a central sport in this child's life, like it or not, and that's going to permeate. And it's either going to work whereby the parent might might be open to the idea of lots of other sports, but the child only wants to do football. Why? Because they're surrounded by adults who... Um, respond to them in a certain way uh, consciously or subconsciously um, when they're involved in that activity. So they get gravitating towards it. It's what they want to do. Why do they want to do it? Because they're going to get all these different sort of... Adults are are responding to them in a different way. But you can present people with these different ideas and you can suggest to them this idea of, you know, donut sports. You can suggest to them some of the research about the idea of, you know, just talking about kind of the dangers of or the potential dangers of single sport participation from a lifelong participation perspective, from an athletic retardation perspective, if you like, from the limitation perspective of of athleticism and from the the potential for things like dropout, et cetera, et cetera. So I guess you've got two ways of doing it. You can come at it from the negative side, look at the danger, which, you know, Often, you know, look at smoking cessation campaigns. It doesn't work, right? So I, I use this interesting framework, a behavior change framework, which can apply to anybody. So you've got basically sort of four levers of behavior change. You can either hug, you can nudge, you can shove, or you can smack. And these are obviously metaphorical. I'm not saying you go around smacking, you know. So you can use a metaphorical hug. So you could hug somebody into a change of behavior. You can nudge them into a change of behavior you could shove them into a change of behavior or you could smack them into a change of behavior, you know, creating a reappraisal. And all of those are appropriate. And in different contexts of coaching, you know, I might use a particular a particular methodology that just creates, makes somebody kind of stand up and take a jolt. That's sort of the metaphorical smack. Whoa, 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 hang on a second. Why, why is it? What? Now I would use some of these ideas maybe and just put, a, put, put them into a box. So my idea of maybe pre- presenting somebody with, Look at this stuff about donor sports. This is an interesting idea that might support whatever they might want to do athletically. You know, you could look at that as a bit of a hug, whereas, you know, maybe presenting them with the research or or an article that talks about the dangers of specialisation, a bit more of a shove maybe or a firm nudge, something along those lines. So I'm sorry I haven't got any kind of hard and firm answers, but that might be a way to think about it.
3: Must be very difficult when you're you're born into a community where everyone who's close to you will affirm that choice and not anything else i mean your 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 destiny is to some degree predetermined
2: happens to an entire nation in New
3: Zealand <laughs> yeah up to a point yes yeah, and so some 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 groups in South Africa too yeah yeah. Huh, very good question there, Finn. I was I was gonna ask you, Stuart, about that as well, is parents of children who become obsessive about a sport, should they just embrace it and go with it? Assume it's a phase? Because I was thinking back to my own childhood. If you'd and I don't I don't know the dates, but if you'd found eleven year old Ross between the month of March and August, I was gonna be playing in the NBA. That was it. I was obsessed with basketball. By September, it was cricket. By the next year, January, it was football. And my parents never said a word. They just facilitated whatever I was obsessed about at that moment. But does a parent embrace obsession in the short term or should they always be trying to encourage balance and generalization throughout 365 days a year, if that question makes sense?
2: Well, I guess um, to use an analogy that probably doesn't quite work, but if you were to indulge your children's obsessions when it comes to, say, nutrition, <laughs> you'd probably get locked up.
3: That would not be Parenting 101, you're right.
2: Yeah, but what, so why would we do that in a sporting context? Having said all that, so I would argue that actually the provision of a balanced physical diet, let's say, um, is just sort of good a good approach to in the same way we would want balance in other areas of their life. We want to create a balanced physical diet and the best way we can possibly create a balanced physical diet using all forms of movement. It doesn't have to be formal, formal. You know, because I do know lots of kids who go to kind of every club known to man. That's not necessarily what we're saying because that could be equally <laughs> challenging. You know, it could be, we just, you know, we're going to do this movement today. We're going to do something else tomorrow. We're going to do some rock climbing and some parkour and some all these different things. So I just used, I probably think about it in those terms.
3: Yeah, I suppose. I mean, for me, it was play, and the only reason my parents ever stopped me is because I made a noise playing in the driveway, bowling a cricket ball up against the metal garage door for two hours every day. So, so, yes, nutrition. Obviously, you wouldn't indulge their obsessions, but but, is there not a difference when it comes to saying we want them to be active? This is what he loves. Should we just not feed that passion?
2: Well, I think you're right about the the concept of of play and the idea of. Um, you know, when, when people are, you know, young people, and I, I was just like you, Ross, by the way, you know, whatever was on the TV at the time, I'm in it and I'm a hundred percent and I'm learning every rule and I'm learning everything about it and I'm designing games around it. And, I, and I'm, you know, that's it. That's all we're doing for the next six weeks. But then, you know, I'm such a sort of, I have such a relatively short attention span that, you know, six weeks later we're on to the next thing. And, uh, mm. you know, I'm, I'm a proper jack of all trades, you know, when it comes to sporting, sporting um experiences but so and actually so actually indulging an obsession in physical activity in all its forms is brilliant as opposed to indulging an obsession in a singular activity until a certain point in time when we can make an informed choice and this is the key thing it's about an informed choice
3: hmm. Hmm. absolutely um there's a question that was asked a while back so to keep you waiting karen has asked actually two questions one of them i think so really good one but it's a big one so i'm going to let you decide how to approach it what's the what's the greatest challenge moving forward post pandemic this is something i'm sure you've thought about a great deal um
2: yeah and and funnily enough we've done quite a bit of um what we call horizon scanning where we brought some agents an agency together to look at what are the trends that are potentially we see in the future influence pandemic influence but also you know what would these trends have been anyway and um, we looked at a number of these different trends. For example, uh, one example I would give you is the idea of a, a multi-speed economy. So, the multi-speed economy is is how you know certain parts of the economy is driving and thriving, and other parts are actually really, really sort of st- stagnant. We're seeing it now. So, for example, we're seeing, for example, uh, agriculture and hospitality who are really struggling to be able to either either move their produce or in the case of hospitality higher um staff to be able to sustain the businesses and so we're seeing stagnation in the economy whereas other parts of the economy are really kind of moving at speed so some exports for example are moving at speed other parts are doing well and in a concept of a multi-speed economy you then have uh, different parts of society able to interact with say sport physical activity in different ways and so, you know, we're thinking, well, what would a kind of multi-speed economy within the sports space look like? So, but to answer the question about that, one of the things we are staring into, I believe, um, is an epidemic of volunteer loss. So I think what's happened pandemic has been a combination of factors. And this is where, not just what I think, this is what we've been studying, if you like. Um, we're looking at the data and we see the numbers drop. So then we go out and we begin to start to study that in more depth with a more qualitative understanding and beginning to see information coming back to us. And the information we're hearing is is that people have either created a reappraisal and they've gone, you know what, pandemic made me really think about what I was doing in my life and actually I now decide I'm going to put my focus elsewhere. Or people have had to change jobs and therefore aren't able to volunteer anymore or they've had to they've left a particular role they're now looking for work volunteering they don't have the discretionary time anymore they can't commit so what we're seeing is a significant reduction of of volunteers and i mentioned this in the last show you know the volunteer workforce is enormous it makes sport and physical activity happen in those kind of organized spaces which is where a lot of children engage in sport and physical activity and uh, and how we can readdress that and so one of the things we're talking about is we need a full reappraisal about the way we value and support volunteers they're not just unpaid workers many of them are treated as and their like their experiences are as unpaid workers and actually that's not going to cut it in the future so for me and i would say this because i work in the workforce development space but looking at it through my lens deliberately that's the thing that we are probably most concerned about as we begin to re-emerge into what you might call, say, sport 2.0, or you know, whether we're recovering and reinventing what the sports system looks like. That's one of the things that has to be front and center in our minds.
3: Mm, Karen followed that question up with what might actually link to what you've just spoken about. She says, "For family carriers, the barriers to participate in sport." and physical activity are arguably greater than ever what can i suppose support england but this goes to any community or organization do to support them i suppose there's some there's some overlap between between what's affecting the volunteer world and, and them in terms of and solving it right yeah and actually funnily enough that speaks
2: to one of the things that we're working on we're, we're working on now which is this recognition through the pandemic as well that we've been you uniquely um reliant on voluntary organizations or charitable organizations in communities to be able to provide physical activity, and even in cases where that is provided you know kind of from a uh, provided through a professional individual, often that's done through you know it's procured by a community charitable organization to minimize the cost of the local community and of course that's the stuff that gets cut first. That's the stuff that disappears the quickest. So, the barriers to access are just widening. They were already, they were already stubborn inequalities in sport physical activity. You know, you have to have the means to access, um, and now it's redu- it's reduced even it's, it's brought a uh, uh, widening even more. So actually, the idea of the family and actually supporting the family as a, as a means by which to not only be a provider but also to be. The, the conduit towards those sorts of engagement experiences is a big part of one of the things we're trying to explore. And actually equipping carers, you know, who did through lockdown, you know, many of them did start to do more physical activity stuff because who knew, Ross, that the way to sort of make people more physically active was to ration it. You're only allowed an hour a day, so everyone's out walking, cycling, doing whatever, running, you know, you've never seen so much that physical activity taking place because there are yeah. limited options out there. But the problem is that habit doesn't necessarily doesn't necessarily carry on. But we did see carers stepping up. We saw amazing things happening in communities. My goal actually is to actually facilitate that through, for example, things like social entrepreneurship. So instead of you know always being about grant making and supporting charitable organizations, what we're doing is enabling individuals to create social enterprises, businesses designed to do public good that can then by providing them with training and skills and equipment and resources to be able to set up these community-based organisations, and we're seeing it now. You know, we see lots of sort of this month. It's called this mum runs type running groups. You know, or you know, um, lots of different sort of self self-directed things. And if we can support individuals to sort of create them as a sustainable business model, what that can then do is create uh, not only an income generation for those individuals but it also means that they can maybe become slowly become employers provide support to others grow that physical activity so the idea being is to create a, over the next 10 years enable people in community to give them the skills and tools and resources and then and then support them to create their own physical activity space as opposed to this top down Mm. you've got to do triathlon in your community why because triathlon's great so here's all the tools you need to do triathlon even though that community might not be excited about triathlon they might want to create something else that might then lead towards things like triathlon but not
3: a starting point interesting very good thanks for that question karen carla uh, I've just asked you to unmute yourself, so you'll be able to ask your question. Fire away. This is Carla who earlier gave us Duckworth. So thanks for that. And question time. Thank you. Now, this is a this is quite a, a simple question. Um, I like the idea of the natural movement patterns and um, and letting people develop the way they want.
2: And when I was a kid, I was very much into agility stuff and dancing, and I choreographed my own group exercise classes. But I also developed some pretty terrible habits of um, that glute activation that I didn't realize until I had physio after hurting myself as an adult, that I had all of these really dysfunctional movement patterns that we couldn't really spot by just watching me. And I'm just wondering if there's a role for t- teaching, particularly teenagers, how to use all of those muscle groups, That especially if they end up being a bit sedentary or maybe lifting weights that are too heavy later on, would help prevent uh, joint and back issues. Yeah, I mean I I do think there is a important role to play for um the development of a full movement repertoire so as to avoid things like you suggested there, you know, whereby you do develop these sort of movement competencies, don't you, or you do you you're underdeveloped in certain areas because you've been overdeveloped in other areas and then there's there's a role to play there. So I I'm not saying that you know, we completely throw all that out. What I'm saying is, is that I think there's been a bit of a, a move towards the mechanized approach of let's build the perfect athlete from the ground up, as opposed to saying, let's allow people to develop their own personal athleticism capabilities through a range of activities that are meaningful. Group exercise being a brilliant one, by the way, uh, and a really important one to the uh, to the health of particularly this nation, uh, particularly for women. Um um and a fabulous female m- female majority workforce particular area of interest of mine because i'm working with the governing body for group exercise at the moment um and so you know there are lots of different uh, movement forms and exciting uh, exciting exercise possibilities that would create that movement repertoire another reason not to be stuck in one because if you're stuck in one that's where you do create deficiency it's the equivalent of the one-dimensional movement diet the burgers only instead of the broccoli as well or actually the full range of all the nutrients and the nutrition place of possibilities and i must say by the way because obviously we lost uh michael Ciksemle- uh, i thought I was going to get that right this week didn't we or just just gone and you mentioned a question around flow and actually i'm a big big passionate believer that Creating experiences that allow people to experience flow states within movement is so important. And the more mechanized we are, the less opportunity there are for flow states. Um, And I've experienced flow in coaching, or at least what I report to be flow, but it's only since... I stopped trying to orchestrate and manage and run and mechanize everything and became a learner within the experience, learning alongside the participants and attuning to what they're experiencing that I've truly ever had experiences of flow. So thank you for asking that question, too. And I think it's particularly relevant to everything I'm trying to talk about around play.
3: Great stuff. Two, let's take two more questions because I am mindful of time. I know it's late now. So thanks for hanging on there. Ben, your question, I'm just asking you to unmute to fire away once you've unmuted yourself.
2: Yeah, fantastic. So um, I think my question is quite narrow because of my job. But I'm a PE teacher at a secondary school um, and a lot of what I'm sort of hearing seems to be that culture is one of potentially the biggest barriers to all of these changes happening. So for me, person is a PE teacher what's the biggest thing you're suggesting it in schools we need to start implementing but I guess more so parents as well and, and people who are involved in that conversation with their children yeah um thanks Ben um physical education is an interest is an interesting space um and there's some really I think some very exciting things happening within the education space particularly the physical education space uh, that actually I think could um, change physical education and, for that matter, change and and really it enhance the um, role that physical ed- education practitioners should and could have within a schooling body. So... Um, there's a number of different i mean so you you may have read some of the stuff that say sporticus on twitter puts out uh with his fantastic blog uh you know and he 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 maintains anonymity i actually know who the person is but he wants to maintain anonymity given away it to he um uh but by and and the reason he wants to maintain anonymity is so that he can challenge some of the orthodoxies that he sees within his own environment um and that's a very interesting source material, I think, around asking and posing some questions about what is the meaning of physical education within the sports landscape. I mentioned earlier the fantastic guys at Boeing, who is they're a charitable organization that was started out of Oxford Brooks and is now also linked into Gloucester University, but a range of other providers. and it's a sort of student-led project that has grown and built and and all that sort of stuff and they have a concept called the play tank and their actual genesis was within physical education in primary settings around the idea of playful experiences as a as a a means by which to foster a love of movement and the development of movement capability um so, so some very exciting things emerging there, and some really interesting research coming out of there because um, one of the things we'd look to do is was to support the development because it's a student-led project. There's a number of different PhDs are going to come out as a result of that, so it's a bit of a watch this space on that. But then you've got like some brilliant researchers out there, like uh, Paul Rudd up in Liverpool, John Moores talking about physical education and done some fantastic studies that you may have read. And then you've got some other pioneering schools uh, I did I did a talent equation live event up at Stuart Melville's college in Scotland they actually asked me to come and bring some people to come and have a sort of a live experience almost you know kind of a live podcast really um, and then you know you've got St David's causing in North Wales where they're actually kind of completely shifting their entire provision more towards a kind of ecologically driven model um, looking towards the idea of you know kind of how do we support young people around a movement journey? So there's so many different pioneers out there that I think it's a really exciting time to be a a PE teacher. Now, the challenge for you, I guess, is there's also a lot of culturally resilient beliefs and behaviours that still exist around physical education. And it's sometimes challenging to... Uh, address some of those sort of dominant orthodoxies particularly amongst hierarchy having said that I also think the education space is becoming increasingly entrepreneurial and so as a result of that there probably is more time well, probably more more so than ever opportunities for people to maybe have a reappraisal about where it is that they might want to go so I guess if you want any help with any of that um, you know I'm happy to chat offline or maybe set up something with a staffing body i've got a few schools have asked me to come and speak to them actually and just share them and i'm more than happy to do some of that but there are others i can put you in touch with who are going through it themselves and it may well be they've got some insights for you around the way that they, they did it that might be useful
3: very good take him up on that ben the revolution begins on a podcast <laughs> our final our final question goes to kate uh from south africa now in england i've asked you to unmute yourself this is yours last question of the evening
0: thank you um so i'm the physio of the group and um so carla i first of all need to tell you that your glutes were never asleep <laughs> okay <laughs> you just needed to learn how to use them differently they're to asleep it's all good um so physios love sort of trying to standardize everything. And that's just what I was going to say about all of your um, standardized movements and functional movement patterns and everything is that uh, n- non-standardized things are not saleable. <laughs> so that's why people don't like them. Um, yeah. so everybody likes to have a little recipe that they use and they just roll that out and they can do courses on it and they can do all sorts of amazing things that are very saleable. So just remember that whenever you're seeing like a method or anything like that, crap okay um <clears throat> sorry <laughs> that that was just my little preamble but what i really wanted to say stuart is that um thank you for your excellent talk tonight and to us as well but um so there's this charter of uh, human rights for children and so I know that every child has the right to be protected from danger. So I I feel quite strongly that all these academies and stuff are actually putting our children in danger because, first of all, they're not um, giving them multi sports. So obviously, they're not developing correctly, but actually, they're breaking them. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, I I mean, as I've said to you before um, on Twitter, you know, I'm at the sharp end of this, so I'm having to deal with it. But do you have any? Advice or anything like that on how that can actually impact future programs for people, because I actually think that that's a very serious problem. Is is never mind that they're not going to reach their sporting potential, or actually properly breaking them.
2: Yeah, I mean, and and like you say, you know, in in your space, you know, they're breaking them physically, but yes. also emotionally, yeah, socially, mentally. In the downstream consequences, are severe. Um, you know, and and many of us will probably recognise this as well. You know, I mean, it, it's 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 anecdotal often. You know, so I don't I don't know what the data is on this, but we would probably all recognise this story enough to know that it's got to be more widespread than we would like it to be. Whereby the so-called, you know, the the individual who is on a particular journey and they're mapped out for this journey you know, either has the career-ending injury or, you know, ends up maybe not making the progress they want and then ends up in a whole range of, you know, what you might call socially unacceptable behaviours that ends up, you know, more or less destroying their life. And you've got to ask yourself the question, if they were never exposed to what is an abnormal environment for a child, and asked to sort of experience that, would would this have happened? Now, the other thing I think is really interesting about the UN Convention, they talk about the right of heart the prevention of har- prevention of harm. But if you think about and um, any other, if you think about any other context, so we used to allow children to you know work in um, mines. You know, we used to allow them to work in the textile factories and then we decided that that was a really bad idea and terrible for them. And so we stopped it and we made it illegal and we protected them from that, but not in sport. They go to workhouses in sport. And for some reason, everyone thinks it's okay. So, I mean, your point about the breaking, the physical physical side of it, I mean, just that on its own Ought to be enough, right? Mm. You know, because you're probably seeing the you're you literally got the casualties most of the time. <laughs> um, uh, but you know, and then but when you then look at all of the kind of social and emotional and mental and psychological, all those sorts of different factors that also come into play, it's just doing harm, mm. straight up.
3: How, how close are we? If it hasn't already happened, and perhaps it has, how close are we to litigation? for those negative outcomes or is is the duty of care not yet the, the the dereliction of the duty of care not yet provable because there's no gold standard for duty of care if that makes sense
2: well we've we've seen it already haven't we where there are now a number of different cases across different sports whereby that very question is being posed ross and so um i we're not far away from i mean a number of years ago, and this is why this is not a new phenomenon, 20 I want, I'm going to say 2015, maybe 2016, um, post a, a number of scandals, I think in cycling in the main, um, uh, Baroness Tanny Gray-Thompson, herself mm. an ex-elite Paralympian, um, produced a report, a wide-ranging 72 recommendation report, duty of care report, you probably remember it. Yeah, I do. And I think there are still many things there that are outstanding in, in, in as in not been addressed. I have a particular piece of work that I'm leading around the role of coaches and their duty of care and actually also duty of care for many of them who often find themselves victims of a system that requires them to act in certain ways even though they themselves know that this is probably not the right way to be. Um, And so actually there are there's still many things in that report that need to be need to be addressed. So I actually think we're at a bit of a zenith at the moment Mm. whereby you've got this societal reappraisal taking place. You've got policymakers standing up, recognizing that this isn't going to wash anymore. And you're seeing lots and lots of sort of activity taking place to deal with that. I'm trying to do try to do this on a systemic basis, but also from the cultural perspective, not just at the policy level, because we work too much at the policy level. You know, and the policies, it's all great having a policy, but it doesn't necessarily change behavior. So we've got to work on a cultural level as well. Mm.
3: So, um, yeah, it's a really interesting time to be uh, in in this space, to be honest. There was a piece actually today, I think it was in the BBC, where a former Manchester City footballer called Micah Richards wrote an article in which he explained how difficult it was when he was in the Manchester City Academy and he was the only one who really made the breakthrough into the adult team. And the piece also included the testimonies of two of his mates who didn't make it. I don't know if you saw this piece, Stuart. Um, But it gave some insights, admittedly superficial, into what it's like when you have invested so much time and energy and hope and then suddenly you don't succeed. Uh, And it it does strike me as though it's a matter of time before a parent or an athlete said actually i gave you the club responsibility for my child's development and you failed horribly against any known standard for it and therefore you're liable and we we've seen tragedies i mean suicides and so on reported and and it's um yeah i agree with you There's there's something brewing there for sure yeah mm. Okay, listen, I think on that on that note, I mean, that's a heavy note to end on. But but I think it's been an enormously constructive conversation. It's been a long one as well. And that's only because Stuart has been so generous with his time. So I want to say thanks again to you, Stuart, for that. I really appreciate it. Those of you who listened did hear Stuart commit to a third one. That's now on record, Assuming assuming that I did, in fact, record this. But if you didn't, I've got at least 10 witnesses to that. So there will be a third one at some stage, but I'll let you off the hook for the for a while. Let me just say finally in closing, thank you very much to those of you who, who dialed in and watched. And thank you for your questions and thank you for your patronage. As I say, it's really appreciated. And I think on that note, I'm going to call it a night. And once again, thanks, Stuart, for your expertise. I've no doubt this podcast will be as much a hit as the first one. So thank you all and good night. Thank you, everyone.
1: Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Pod and on Instagram at Science of Sport podcast.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen